when its red glow shines upon the land, the aimless spirits of slain monsters return to flesh, just as they did in a war long past. This is my brother, my captain, my podcast. The world is threatened once again. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is A Blade That Shatters, our thoughts on The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. But first, our spoiler warning. We will be talking about Zelda without really spoiling the plot of Tears of the Kingdom, but we will probably spoil, let's say, the first 10% of the game, the opening stuff, um, as well as other Zelda conversations that may come up, specifically Breath of the Wild, but I bet we'll hit on some of the other uh, Zelda titles as well. And uh, speaking of podcasting about Zelda, this is actually kind of a spiritual sequel to episodes that both me and Emily have done in the past. Over at my old Metal Gear Solid podcast, Podcast Sans Frontiers, me, Brian, and special guest Mark Normandon recorded an episode on the five-year anniversary of Breath of the Wild. Um, that is called Courage Need Not Be Remembered. Nice. Uh, so if you want to listen to that, please do. And Emily, I believe you also recorded an episode on Breath of the Wild with Kiefer over at Select and Start. Yes. Hell yeah. That was such a fun one to do. Um, and that one is super laden with uh, Tolkien-y goodness, <laughs> uh, which I had completely not flagged or just like barely flagged the first time playing through Breath of the Wild. But after I went back and played it after listening to Emily's episode on it, it's like, holy shit, this is Tolkien as fuck. It is a Lord um, of the Rings adaptation. <laughs> So how does how does one begin talking about Tears of the Kingdom? Lincoln's Elder fucking it's canon. Yeah, I think that's pretty much <laughs> a given given how this game starts. So uh, just to briefly introduce the game, you literally start as Link following the events of Breath of the Wild. That includes your master sword, your Hylian shield, two full rows of hearts, three stamina wheels, and you and Zelda are exploring underneath Hyrule Castle. Um, you discover the corpse of the Demon King, um, and then a whole bunch of shit happens, a bunch of stuff lifts into the sky, and then Link comes to uh, somewhere up in the sky called the Great Sky Island, um, and we find out that Zelda is off doing shit, and that's basically how the game starts. <laughs> you got anything to add to that? It's just like, I, I mean, so, okay, so I was one of these people who, like, um in a fit of just ridiculousness was like, Oh my God, maybe this will be the one where we finally get Zelda co-op. And I was really holding out for it. Like I was really, really holding out for it. And so when I sat down to start playing it and you're wandering with Zelda through the dungeons, um, of of Hyrule Castle. Um and there's like a moment where I think you're about to like walk by her and then there's a cutscene. I was like, oh my God, this is gonna be it. And it and it wasn't it. But I think it was really fine because there was so much personality like packed in to that tiny little cutscene or that series of cutscenes um down beneath Hyrule Castle. And and I think it was like 
Breath of the Wild doesn't start with a cutscene. It starts with Link waking up, um, like, where the fuck am I? And and so you, like, as Link, playing as Link, are really discovering, like, what it means to be Link um, as you progress through Breath of the Wild. But this is, like, it, it, it's, it sets a very clear thesis from the start that, like, you are Link, you know who you are, you know what you were. Um, and, and also Zelda is, like, a very tangible thing to you. She's not just some sort of, like... Um, disembodied voice um, occasionally warning mm-hmm. you about things. She's not some figment of your imagination or perhaps your memory. She is someone that's like real and tangible and whole and and has like quite a fun personality um, and, and seeing those kind of weaving interactions between um, between Zelda and Link, you know, beyond just the haha they're fucking thing. Um, it, it really is like a, it's a very strong, like a, a very kind of heavy gauntlet for this game to cast because it's saying more so than in Breath of the Wild, um, this is a story, um, not not so much of discovery, but this is a story of building, um, which I think like is perfect for a sequel, right? Because it's we're not learning what Breath of the Wild is. We're 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 building on Breath of the Wild, both like narratively, character wise, but also term in terms of like gameplay and mechanics. And and I just don't think I've ever like felt something like a creative thesis in a video game come across quite as strongly and quite as like kind of charmingly as it did in in this. Uh, initial cutscene. Yeah, no, I think you uh, got it exactly right. And I think one of the things is this is a rarity uh, for those of you who aren't super familiar with the Zelda series. There aren't many direct sequels in the franchise. Um, usually they just build a brand new game from the ground up with new systems and new ideas, um, obviously built around some core ideas like who Zelda, Prin- uh, Link, and Ganon are. But um, this is a legitimate direct sequel. They were able to reuse assets and actually build upon, like you say, both the game design and the story of Breath of the Wild. Like Breath of the Wild to me is very much about you're stumbling into a world that is broken and you're helping to reconnect it, um, like literally using shrines as making them travel points. Um, You're helping people, you know, build Terrytown. um, And then you're kind of dealing with all the regional phenomenon that's happening in that game. Um, And it's very much kind of knitting the world back together. And Tears of the Kingdom to me feels like we've knitted the kingdom together, but now we have to grow. Now we have to move into whatever the next phase is. Now we have to go through like, I don't know, an economic revolution or something, because it feels like most of the new villages have uh, embraced capitalism nonstop, (laughs) uh, full stop um, in it. But um, the game design thing is something I really want to talk about because Breath of the Wild, it, it's a game that almost kind of like min-maxed its systems. And mm-hmm. that's where a lot of like the fun YouTubes and TikToks from that game came from is because it's like, oh, let me sit on a log and let me stasis it and like pound it with an axe and then like send it flying across, you know, the map. Um, and that would be like a cheap way to like get cover large distances. And they're like, fuck it. Why don't we just give you rockets and planes and gliders <laughs> and we'll just let you do that on your own. It'll be you know, kind of built into the game as opposed to just a logical extension of the systems we built. Um, And then they also kind of expanded on the map. Um, The main surface Hyrule field map is mostly the same as Breath of the Wild, except for things that changed because of story reasons. But they took the whole idea of verticality, which was never really a big thing in Zelda prior to Breath of the Wild, in large part because of so many 2D titles. Uh, but uh, they took the idea of verticality that you can climb anything and kind of go anywhere and glide anywhere. And then they actually like applied that to the map and the world. And through that, they built up this um, two completely new areas in the world, um, the Sky Islands, which are above Hyrule and that um, what's it called? 
they're way, way above Hyrule. And they almost function as like kind of open world shrines or like one big open world shrine. It's a mostly a bunch of puzzles, a couple of uh, encounters with enemies, but it is really more about using your skills, your runes, and just navigating the world. And they also added the depths uh, below the surface of Hyrule, which feels like one open world dungeon, um, which is just kind of crawling with enemies, crawling with goodies to, you know, pick up. Um, and it really kind of tests your skills because one thing the depths do, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, is that it kind of fundamentally takes away the way you played Breath of the Wild because you lose things like line of sight and mm -hmm. lighting. You don't have things that are easy to climb um, and you really have to engage with the new systems and the depths on top of all the ways it plays with kind of like the health and resources down there. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think there's also like... Um Breath of the Wild starts with this sense of like you are a blank slate, um, and and you are kind of discovering the echoes of of what you once were. But like, it, it, it's not so much about recovering who you were, you know, a hundred years ago, who Link was a hundred years ago. It's about building that afresh. Um, and and Tears of the Kingdom is doing this really remarkable thing where like you had like Link had something has now lost it, and and you are kind of helping Link to clamber back and, and, and try and recover what, what was no longer there, um, or what is no longer there. Um, but, but as you're doing that, there, there is, like you say, this, this kind of absolute over, like not overpowering in, in the negative sense, but like this game feels overpowered. Like this game feels like it is doing so much more than a video game should be able to do successfully. Um, it feels like it is doing, you know, I mean, the physics, the mechanics of this game are just insane. Um, there, there should not be this much freedom in a video game. Um, I, you know, I always joke about how Breath of the Wild has ruined other video games for me because, like, things like the sound of your footsteps changing, or like, um, you know, the the calibration of like the heat and and cold mechanics, um, in Breath of the Wild being such that like if you barely inch over in you know from one side of the Elden Mountains into the kind of the more Goron side of, of the Elden Mountains, you know, you start to catch on fire, even if it's only by like a pixel that you're over. Like that level of calibration was crazy in Breath of the Wild and, and really just felt like video games operating at 100%. And then Tears of the Kingdom came out and it's just this new, like, it's not necessarily radical. It's just like ultra competency. And that mirrors what Link is kind of at in, in, in Tears of the Kingdom, where like this video game is ultra competent it's doing what video like what it wants to do at 110 percent and and link is also doing the same thing and then the depths is is link being kneecapped in a sense but the game still just superpowers itself in in the depths and and also when you're you know in the sky islands and I, i'm not 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 enthused i mean i still love every part of this game but you know i'm not as enthused by the sky islands as, as i am with everything else precisely because i love climbing everything and, and seeing and being able to you know, take these big leaps and I miss Rivali scale, um, basically is the, the, the short of that. But like, you know, it, it, this is a game that set the a challenge for itself of be what Breath of the Wild was plus 10%. But then it also seems to have set itself the challenge of like, what does it mean to be a, to be a Nintendo, like, video game? What does it mean to have Nintendo's resources? What does it mean to have Nintendo's experience, to have Nintendo's sense of like, 
brand self, I guess, brand, not to be too corporate, like brand identity, but like, what does it mean to be Nintendo? What does it mean to make a, a Legend of Zelda game? Um, and what does it mean if you do that perfectly? Um, and, and every kind of element of the introduction of this game is just about answering that and then being like, but wait until you see what, what else we can do with this. Mm -hmm. uh, there is something that I find like really great about how this is like a true sequel as a video game. Like even with the three starts that you or the three hearts, rather, you eventually, you know, start with when you really start playing the game. Like I still felt I could go and fight some pretty difficult enemies. Like if I ran up into a Hinox on the open Hyrule field, I would still probably beat them. And I did. Um, because I had that kind of muscle memory and the knowledge of the systems from Breath oh of the Wild. <laughs> and it, it is just kind of refreshing because we, I don't know how it is in Scotland or anything like that, but America has this kind of like dual approach to video games where a lot of people still kind of view them as toys, like things yeah. where um, you... Because originally in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, video games were in the toy sections at most places. Yeah. And the idea is that you should be able to start a video game and if you're not blowing up or killing something within the first 30 minutes, then it's a waste. It's no fun. You know, People are picking it up in the way they want to pick up an action figure. Uh, whereas that's not always how video games go. Haha, <laughs> Metal Gear Solid is very much you know <laughs> a proof of that. But I think that's also a little bit not to get all like geographical or ethnically biased here but like eastern gaming companies have a little more of a different approach to games being something other than just toys yes um like they they think about it so just like movies just like books there's there should be games that are challenging that are difficult that are maybe harder to start off but then once you you know get into it you get you know really get into it um breath uh sorry tears of the kingdom kind of is you can definitely start if you wanted to play here. If you played a 3D Zelda, you, you'll probably figure it out. But this really is a game that feels like, oh, you really want to play Breath of the Wild first. And I think that's a good thing. That's not being like, oh, you should go also buy this other $60 Nintendo product. Um, it's more just like, this is a game designed to be a sequel, and that is okay. This Games are allowed to do that. They're not just made for everyone who is six, year, six years old to pick up and play, um, and that's how games should be judged on in terms of either difficulty or complexity or things like that. Yeah, so, I mean, I think this geographical component is interesting. Um, I, I mean, I have to say the, the, like, how does it work here in Scotland thing is kind of a funny question because I live two miles away from where a little company called Rockstar North um, was started, <laughs> was founded, um, and... Grand Theft Auto was made by guys from Dundee, uh, from where I live. And so, like, when you think about a very specific kind of, um, of video game, um, it, it has its, it, it has its provenance, um, in, in Scotland, um, by Scottish developers, by people who came out of, like, Aberdeen University or Edinburgh University. So, so, like, that, that's a very specific kind of gaming culture. But, like, um, I think there is something kind of, um, it, it it's kind of refreshing about how, like, not american this game is and like for all mm -hmm. of the reasons you said but there's also little things because like this was actually one of the first things i said about this game I, I i was sitting on the couch and i was like to connor who still hasn't played it a uh, ridiculous behavior um i was like <laughs> you can tell that this isn't like an american game because of it was when, um, so one of the first things that you can do is if you go to Link's house in Hatano village, um, it's all, it's now inhabited by Zelda. Um, and so she's got mm -hmm. her like little diaries and then you can go down the well and she's got a secret room in there. And, and one of the things you find in there is Link's hairband. Um, and, and that's like a very like intimate thing. Um, you don't tend to have the hairband of like, 
and I, I think it's just safe to assume that they're in a relationship. You don't tend to have like the hairband of someone that like you're in a relationship with if they're not like spending the night there. And like, it's not like this is like a, a game that is like getting into graphic sex, um, but it's the fact that it's not getting into graphic sex, but is making these hints at like uh, adult relationships, adult romance, um, adult behavior um, that haven't been toned down by this sort of obsessive need to be um, ba- to basically Disneyfy everything to like either you either strip everything of sex and pretend, you know, inhabit a world in which sex isn't real. Um, or you lean into it like, you know, like the Grand Theft Auto games where where sex is so ever present and, you know, sex and raw violence and th- things that are quote unquote adult are so present that they're basically the only point of what's happening. Um, there is this approach to all of the things in Tears of the Kingdom that 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 is about this kind of um it's it's weaving you know the the not childishness of video games but like the childlike wonder um of video games um with um the ability to include to reckon with to to perhaps sometimes dance around things that are more adult but without it needing to be like aggressively explicit and i'm not trying to sound like one of these people that's like oh if you deal with like things that are adult head on then that's horrible and how dare you and yada 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 but i but i just think there's something kind of refreshing about the fact these things that this is a game that knows that it will be both picked up by kids and by adults and and loved about the same by kids and by adults um and isn't fighting one demographic group or or the other it's not trying to be like if you're an adult playing this fuck you go elsewhere and it's not uh uh like um if you're a kid playing this how fucking dare you pg-13 get out of here um it's doing that thing you know that thing that we make fun of like disney and marvel for doing which is like the four quadrants marketing but it's doing that by treating everybody basically as human beings who are equally intellectually and sort of socially and emotionally capable of handling things instead of trying to like um um lower itself to this like imagined lowest common denominator and and i just think that that's like there's something in that approach to the world that is decidedly un-American. I don't know. I'm not necessarily confident enough to be like, oh, that's like an aggressively Japanese way of doing narrative because I'm not really sure that that's true, but it's not American. And I think that is what I find so refreshing, so nice, so kind of encouraging about this game is that it's not trying to be like everything else in the media market right now, which is all just Disney. Yeah. Um, speaking of trying to be like everything else, I want to talk about the graphics and the actual oh, yes. visual presentation of this game. Um, because we live in depraved times, <laughs> and the only thing people seem to want out of video game graphics is highest frame rate and real-life fidelity. Um, it feels like a love for like art design, which this game has wonderful art design, and I think you can see um, some very clear like manga and specifically like Ghibli influences on the designs in this game. Um, but it's like we only like it's it's like saying that the only good car is like a Ferrari because it goes fast or something <laughs> like that. Um, that's kind of the way people talk about video games and like forgetting art design. I think it's actually more impressive that this game is running on a six year old console mm-hmm. than if it was like running on a brand new Nintendo with like a perfect frame rate and, you know, hyper fidelity graphics or anything like that. Like, there's an actual, like, ingenuity to this game's design that we just don't talk about in video games. Um, You're you're just going to have to put up with me referencing Metal Gear Solid a lot. (laughs) But Metal Gear Solid 2 on the PlayStation 2, um, 
Kojima had a very specific thing he wanted to do in terms of visuals. And he's like, well, I can't do it with the hardware I have. So I'm actually going to deprecate the frame rate. We're going to go down to 30 frames per second. And there's going to be a lot of motion blurring, which if you put that now out in a AAA game, people would like lose their minds about it because it's like, oh my God, this isn't the best possible graphics that we can do mm-hmm. with this hardware. So it's thus bad. But no, it's like, no, I'm using the tools that I have to bring the presentation I want to the fore. And I feel like something else is something like that is happening here with Tears of the Kingdom because another thing about these games and honestly all Switch games, there's no, um, what's it called, uh, like installs onto your hardware. Yeah. You plug in the game and it plays like an old school Nintendo cartridge. Of course, there are loading screens, both obvious loading screens, and there's like loading screens that are kind of hidden into <laughs> the gameplay. Like the Ascend function yeah. is a great example of this where it just cuts to Link swimming upwards through a green screen um, <laughs> and before he emerges in a new part of the map. Um, but we we don't talk about game design and game performance in these terms anymore. It's always just like how hyper real is the reflection in a puddle in Manhattan in the newest Spider-Man game? Or can we see, you know, the hairs on Alo- uh, Aloy's face and hear uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, uh, which in and of itself opens up whole whole slew of misogyny directed at female characters and mm-hmm. games. But it's just like. We're fundamentally losing how to talk about games in a way beyond just does it look like the most realistic thing that we can create with this hardware? Yes. And I think that's the other thing is, right? So like, yes, Breath of the Wild was also released on the Wii U, which was the previous generation console. But this game, Tears of the Kingdom, you know, obviously we don't have the new console announced from Nintendo, and I suspect it may be a while away. But um, But I think there's something nice about it being on that same console because it feels like they really come to understand mm-hmm. what it means to be a Nintendo Switch game and 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 they've really thought about you know uh, you know as with Breath of the Wild where you know they're not fighting the game engine in the way that I think a lot of other video games are for the reasons that that, that you've outlined there like this aggressive need to have hyper realism this you know perfect graphics whatever bullshit um they've also I think in in just every sense they really understand what it means to be a Nintendo Switch game and they're playing to that and it's you know it's not just the motion controls which I think are far better in Tears of the Kingdom than they were in Breath of the Wild and I hadn't really thought they weren't good in Breath of the Wild to begin with um it's it's things you know like what you're saying where um the the stylization um, the water, the, the thing, the first thing that got me is the water, right? So they, they've changed how water looks, the, the white capping on water looks um, in this game from, from Breath of the Wild. And it's really subtle, but it looks more like, um, how water looks in Wind Waker. Um, and, and it's less quote unquote realistic, um, than it is in Breath of the Wild, but it's that much more beautiful because when you're diving into the water now, it looks like a little piece of art. Um, and it also connects it kind of more coherently to, to, the the kind of gaming history of of the Legend of Zelda via via Wind Waker, um, I, I, and I think there's like you know they've clearly thought about what it means to do, you know to to build a game for the Nintendo Switch. They've thought about what the limitations are, like you say, with with what this hardware is. Um, but then they've clearly not thought about it like oh limitations, sad face. They thought about it like it's a challenge, um, and mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. the, the the challenge is to perfect it. And it's kind of like you know these things that they throw down with these fucking corks that are everywhere. That's a challenge. There's about ten million ways of answering it, um, answering that challenge or rising to that challenge. Um, the only wrong way to to rise to that challenge in the mind of this game is by leaving the cork on the side of the road. Um, and they've you know in this thing the the 
the the the issue of quote unquote the issue of the Nintendo Switch is the Coric, the fat Coric on the side of the road. Um and Nintendo <laughs> have instead built a massive catapult to fling that fucker to his pal. Um I, I, and they've done it in such a way that never makes you feel like it was a slog or a problem or um something that you should feel bad about that this Coric or the Nintendo Switch exists. Yeah. And I even like the little flourish of uh uh, Link's pure, uh, pad, uh, essentially being a Nintendo Switch, just like the Sheikah <laughs> Slate was in Breath of the Wild, which again, I have to mention Metal Gear Solid in Metal Gear Solid 4, Snake controls his little drone buddy with a PlayStation 3 remote. <laughs> um, so I like to think that that's all related, but that is kind of like really kind of really looking at the game you're making holistically, like beyond just like the game that's on the screen, but also like the console it's on, the controller you're playing with, and kind of like melding all those layers together. Um, so it kind of creates a true like immersive experience, a few, a true like interactive experience. And um, another thing I really, really hate talking about because people are dumb is the story in video games generally and stories in Zelda specifically, because for a lot of people, stories just means, again, hyper realistic cutscenes. Yeah. The idea that story can be told through the way the world is laid out or the way systems function Ugh, yes. or even like um, the way this game exists within the context of the Zelda catalog. Not saying that you have to do like the hardcore Zelda timeline, you know, connecting all these games, but you can see how this in relation to other Zelda games, whether it's Breath of the Wild or Wind Waker or the OG NES one, you can see how all those kind of are speaking to each other and allow you to kind of fill in story as it's supposed to be played in a video game because a video game is different than a movie is different than a tv show it's not going to just tell you or show you the story part of what makes a video game a video game is you playing it and through the game design through the game systems that story needs to come to life just as much as it does through cutscenes and voice acting and things of that nature yeah it's okay so this is this is kicking open a door um that i'm very excited to kick open but the environmental storytelling and tears of the kingdom um, and I feel like I need to preface this with um, the environmental storytelling in Breath of the Wild was my favorite thing ever. Um, it mm -hmm. is the way that Breath of the Wild felt um, and, and the way that it worked through the things that existed in, in the built and, and natural environment around you in Breath of the Wild is is just it, it is the best thing in the world to me. I will never be as in love with anything as I was with that. Um, Tears of the Kingdom is surprisingly perfect for me as well because i thought that loneliness that sense of this is a you know it's the lord of the rings thing it is it is sam and frodo walking through athelion and seeing the fallen statue of of the king and and that king being covered in moss and in, and in ivy and and realizing truly that this is a world that has seen its prime and and is now living in in the latter days of, of that um of that legend um breath of the wild captured that perfectly and and i had this kind of worry that they would not be able to do anything that would capture that that kind of high that i felt in breath of the wild that like lovely comforting loneliness and they have they fucking done it um, they fucking done it and they populated a world and 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 made it feel built up and vibrant and vital and 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 they've done it in, in, in just so many just so many wonderful little ways and and you know one of the things that i think has been the most exciting for me is that the the ground level map is recognizable 
Um, the ground mm-hmm. level map has not changed from Breath of the Wild. It is still Hyrule. Um, yeah, bits and pieces have like either been sunk in and down or blown up, literally blown up um, to sort of alter it. But you know, I love um, I love running around. Um, <laughs> I love running around in in Nakuda, and I love just the, the the kind of look of that region. And I and I have in my head just from hours and hours and hours clocked in Breath of the Wild, like certain land like uh, uh like uh, like landmarks um that i'm just mm-hmm. used to and running around there in tears of the kingdom it took me a while to realize that i was still navigating by those same landmarks but the things that have changed is that where it used to be a very lonely kind of area and where it used to be a very lonely landmark there are suddenly people there and there are things and there's a great little side quest about dealing with a new animal that has appeared um and instead of it just being this sort of mythical thing where you're chasing after an animal that may or may not exist you find that yes it does exist and also it's on an animal like preservation and there's someone taking care of this new animal and researching it and trying to find out more about it and also zelda's got her sort of like her her influence over it because she also loves and cares for these animals and you know loves all things that grow and are not barren um and mm-hmm. um like you know there's there's this feeling that um there are still things to to explore, but you are doing it as part of this wider community. You are you are, you know, you may still be cutting through the jungle, but as you cut through the jungle, it's not there's nothing on the other side of it. There's no one on the other side of it. There are people there who are living their lives and you were you as Link are just occasionally dipping into them and then cutting back out. And and that level of vitality, of population, of of, of sort of re building and regrowth is not something I it is genuinely not something I thought they would be able to pull off in quite the way that they have. Yeah, no, it's cool. Everywhere you go, there's Addison trying to make sure the president is still standing <laughs> or some Gerudo lady just making her way along. Yeah, it is just a more populated world. And this kind of is going to tie in a couple of things I've already talked about, the fact that you kind of make your own story and that it's a true sequel, because once I got into Hyrule proper and I had the glider my first thought is I'm gonna go check on my pals in Kakariko Village nice um, because in almost every Zelda game uh, you usually run into Impa or she's you know one of the key characters in the Zelda mythos over the many games so I'm like usually she's a great person to go start talking to to figure out what's going on in this world that's how Breath of the Wild started you go meet her and she tells you about the memories and what's happening and then you go to Kakariko Village and she's not there she's somewhere else <laughs> But Kakariko Village has changed for many reasons. Um, there's ring ruins above it. There's one of the old ladies is sick from some weird gloom, you know, syndrome or something. Um, so, like, through my own experience and through my own decision on what I want Link's story to be, I was able to, like, navigate and kind of create and forge my own story for Link. Likewise, the one of the major temples I haven't done yet is the Fire Temple, the one in Death Mountain and Goron City. <laughs> Part of me is because I am an old person in the OG NES and then the Super Nintendo Link to the Past. Death Mountain was one of the last temples you did in those games. So I'm like, I'm going to recreate my nostalgia. I'm, I'm going to be a nostalgia boy here for a second. And like, but I'm going to, I'm going to structure this game to tell a story that I'm familiar with or the way I'm used to Zelda stories going. And granted, those story, those games are 30 years old now, but I was still able to kind of make sense of it using my own experience and my own history with these games to kind of forge a story for Link um, that, like, I'm going to think of this game as a narrative, even though the game itself is not really pushing me to think of it that way. It's all just kind of there. They're like pieces that you fuse together on your own, as opposed to 
actually like having a character tell you, you go do this and then you go do that and then you can finally do this. Um, it is not like that. Just like the first game, this is a narrative you kind of have to construct on your own. Yes. Yeah. And and I think that's the other thing is like um, uh, one of the things that I like yelled um, in joy um, when I got to my first stable and realized that my horses from my Breath of the Wild save were there. Um, mm-hmm. There is there is you know it, it's it is it is about constructing the story for yourself but there's also like there's so much room for building off of what you did in in breath of the wild and the way that you inhabited breath of the wild and it's not so much that like oh it's uh, gatekeeping or whatever bullshit word but like you know <laughs> for the people who play breath of the wild there's so much reward it there's so much reward for having done that and and you know like they're just little things like in in Hateno village which is my favorite um place one of my favorite places in uh in hyrule um the the land um behind the farms that to me in breath of the wild always just felt really open and and kind of depressing or like a bit like um standing at the edge of the world and 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 looking off at nothing and realizing just how much nothingness there is well now there's a school there. <laughs> um now there's a school there that zelda has built and if you stand there at 7 30 in the morning you see all of the kids go running in to the school where they're going to get their lesson and my god you can take part in this lesson um and, and that kind of like that kind of um there is there is you know there is growth um but there are also these things that they are aware like intimately aware i would say of how people reacted to and responded to breath of the wild um and and they built on that um and they really you know kind of gone well just go ape shit um and i think it's interesting because because it feels very clear to me that there is a kind of element of the developers responding to how people played breath of the wild and how people responded to breath of the wild that usually would make me quite nervous um, because usually I'm like, well, if you're a creator, like if you're a creative, if you're an artist, you should have your thesis and stick to it no matter what anybody says. Um, and and it, it tends to be that when people react to what people are saying to their art, that that tends to be weakened, I, I think, substantially. But it, it feels clear to me here that they've listened to what people or understood how people reacted to Breath of the Wild um, at both micro and macro level. And, and then just kind of like kicked open the doors on that and have really played with what that means in such a fascinating way. I mean, obviously the fact that like the, for the speedrunners, this is speedrunners paradise. They've really just let mm-hmm. them go absolutely apeshit. But like all of these things, like building out Hateno, um, in, in, in Kakariko village, there's a diary. Um, um, Paya's diary is under her bed, but you can't, you can't read it. It looks like all of the other diaries that, that you can reach and read in the game, but this one you can't read. And, and that is like totally building on the fact that everybody wants to know what Paya is writing about Link. And the game is aware of that, but it's not going to let you read that. And, and cause, cause Paya has grown as a character and, and, and Paya has, has come into herself. And so she, she is now being afforded by that game a new level of dignity and respect that she wasn't when she was just the kind of teenage girl with a crush. And, there are all of these just bits and pieces all the way throughout everything in this game that are, they are aware of what Breath of the Wild was, and they're not running from it. Um, they're not trying to change what it what Breath of the Wild meant. They're not trying to revolutionize what a Breath of the Wild sequel is. They're just building on it, um, and it just echoes everywhere in this game. Yeah, um, I think the most obvious example of the developers understanding what people loved about Breath of the Wild is that when you go to Zoro's domain and there's a statue of Link riding Sidon's back, like they absolutely saw all the Yaoi and fan art of Link and Sidon over the last six years. 
And, you know, speaking of horniness and characters coming into their own, uh, Pura. Pura mm-hmm. is so incredibly hot mm-hmm. in this game. It's insane. In fact, everyone's hot. Like, there yep. is not... Um, a not hot person here. I expect when I do finally go to Goron City that I'm going to get horny for the Gorons just because everywhere else <laughs> I've gone in this game, everyone is just like super hot. And it's great. It's just a lot of fun. They really, they just leaned into it. And I think like, first of all, I want to say that people who complain about weapon deprecation in Boo-hoo, Breath of the Wild, um, please go find God because yes. he is not <laughs> shining on you at this moment. <laughs> But even if that was a big complaint and almost like a deal breaker for you, even though that system is still here in this game with functions like Fuse and Ultra Hand, it is like completely different. Like I don't ever worry about breaking weapons anymore because if I can find a stupid, dumb tree branch, I know I can attach a rock or some kind of construct part or a wheel or a rocket to it and instantly I have a good weapon. I'm not even worried about it. Um, I did, you know, get the Master Sword and I want to find the Hylian Shield in Tears of the Kingdom, but I don't really feel that pressure to do that like I did in Breath of the Wild um, because there was, uh, because I think Breath of the Wild, just because of its systems, is a little more survivalist than this game is, um, more in degree than in kind. But in this game, I just never really worry about it. Like I accumulated like a hundred Korok seeds before I even like really turned them in because I'm like, I know how to collect these. I got them, but I'm doing fine with five weapon slots because the tools this game give me allow me to do basically whatever I want. Yeah. Well, so, and I think there's also like, there's so much kind of embodied by the difference in the weapons mechanics, right? Because like Breath of the Wild, like you say, it's very survivalist, but it's also this thing that is like, it is you, you as Link are trudging around the, 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 the ruins of a broken kingdom um and so the fact that like as you are you are panicking as all your weapons degrade like as your weapons fall apart literally in your hands and you don't have enough slots you can't carry enough you cannot find enough bits and pieces of the old world to sustain yourself in in this quest um that is building in a sense of panic and the weapon mechanics there are all about destruction and decay um which is ironic given that the the reason most of these weapons don't work in in Tears of the Kingdom in quite the same way is because of the decay that has been set upon them mm-hmm. by the gloom. But this weapons mechanic is all about construction. I mean literally fusing construction. It's all about building. It's all about taking the materials that are there in this new and revitalized world and finding ways to make them work. Now that the things that the relics of the old world no longer work for you. Um and and that kind of separation, that that distinction between the two is so like I was very pro the weapons degradation because usually in video games, I pick one weapon and stick with it the entire time and never learn how to use any other weapons. And in Breath of the Wild, that's not really an option. Tears of the Kingdom, at first, I was a bit like, God, I'm too... I'm just too fucking stupid to figure out how to make this fuse thing work. And now I'm kind of, you know, into a routine that's more comfortable with it. And I've really figured out how to, like, play this game and, you know, weapons-wise in a way that 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 works for me and that feels really good. Um, but But there's something so, like... In the fact that you are building these things, I it, it's almost like a personality test. Like any given moment in 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 my inventory, I've got about twenty different rock breaking weapons, and mm-hmm. like at most a scepter with like a sapphire on it, so I can freeze enemies and run the fuck away. Like I'm not building <laughs> weapons that are meant to be good weapons. Like I'm not in this game to fight and win anything. I'm in this game to explore, to like beat the shit out of the local environment and freeze enemies so I can run away. And like, 
I just know that nobody else is playing that game quite that same way, building their weapons, constructing their weapons in quite the same way, because everybody is playing this game with a kind of different mindset. And it's just so perfectly embodied by that one little mechanic. Oh, yeah, it, it is so cool. Like, I've even, like, created weapons that I haven't really, like, used yet, um, just because I haven't had a need. But I have a feeling it's going to just be awesome when I finally do. Um, I don't know if you fought a Kolgara yet. I ran for um, one. Okay, um, but um, one of his drops or her drops, you know, I, it could be it could be any gender. I don't want to uh, ascribe any gender to the Kolgaras out there in the world. Uh, but one of their drops is um, their like mandible jaw, like they're giant fucking pincers. So I attach that to a boomerang. I haven't used uh. it yet, but I just cannot wait to see what that thing will do when I actually fucking throw it at someone. Um, and like they give you a lot of tools. Like I was relying on those rock breaking like sticks like you were. Um, very early on but then as i beat temples um i found that some of the things that those unlock are like well now i don't have to worry about having bombs or rocks on sticks anymore because there are other ways to break shit um and it's just really nice uh one thing i was thinking about the last couple of days is so you have a bunch of new kind of like tools at your disposal kind of like in the first game you had stasis and the bombs and i forget what the other magnesis yeah. it kind of feels like the skills in this game are like the true versions of the skills that were in breath of the wild like the recall method here in tears of the kingdom feels like it's the stasis power but like cranked up to like a thousand yeah um because it still does the whole like freeze everything in time for a second but then it actually sends it back to where you know you the item that you're recalling came from which i found that's how i fight all the uh taluses like the big rock guys um because they like to throw their big Whoa. rocky arms at you oh my god and i just stop time i hit the i hit oh recall on the god. rock and it goes and flies back at them and stuns them oh my god um, i hadn't even thought about that i've been playing baseball with like all of the like moblins and bagoblins and it had not once occurred to me to try that with the talus oh my god yeah um and like as soon as i figure that out like Every time I see a talus, I'm like, yes, easy gem farming because um, they literally cannot hit me because their only real attack when I'm at a distance is to throw their rocks at me and I'm just able to throw them all back at them. Oh my god. Um, like, likewise, the ultra hand, it feels like the magnesis power because the magnesis was you can move metal objects around. But ultra hand is you can move anything around. It just feels like that power up to a thousand. And I feel like... You can explain that however way you want in the world, like because of this game's narrative that kind of like goes back to before the time of the calamity in Breath of the Wild. You're like tapping into more ancient powers than you were in the first game. Or you can say because you helped heal the world in um, Breath of the Wild and when you beat Calamity Ganon, that that allowed for these, you know, magics or powers that exist in the world to actually reach their full breath if you... Whichever way you want to explain it, I feel it works, but I think it's very important that those um, skills are tied to each other, or at least you can see a clear through line through some of the systems that were in Breath of the Wild and how they were not only improved upon from a gameplay and game design standpoint, but they, there actually is narrative to those as well. Yes. I mean, I called it post, not clarity, but um, which I am <laughs> sticking with. But I, I think there's also like... This game... like Because you are right. Like Every element of those powers... Not every element. There are some parts of these powers that are new, but like uh, so much of those are like the clear inheritors to what we had in Breath of the Wild, and 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 that's just true for anything that's a sequel. Um, and and yet I think there is um so much creativity 
not required because you could be you could play this game like me and not really be very creative about it but like there is so much creativity that's enabled by this game um that that it just feels it's i mean it is three times map size almost um of breath of the wild even though it is the same map but it just feels infinitely larger and and i think there's also this sense of like newness to it because like I mean, I would never have thought to have fought a Talus like that. I will now be fighting them exclusively like that because um, I just keep getting my shit kicked in every time I try and jump on them like I did in Breath of the Wild. Um, but, you know, the, the basically, I feel like this game is taking it is keenly aware of the fact that it is speaking a language that I speak. And yet it's like introducing someone who just knows how to like read and write English, but hasn't really been um you know, hasn't really been exposed to to art in the English language before. It's like handing them Shakespeare. Um, and that sense of, oh, this is what the English language can do. Like this is what mm-hmm. this thing is when it feels like it's operating at at the top tier, if you will, the top tier of the kingdom. Um <laughs> and, 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 um, I think the other thing is right. So I, I realize now I have bought I have indeed bought uh Colgara because I did the Wind Temple. Um, but there's always this kind of element where like in this game, I feel like every time I talk to people and they're like, oh, have you seen this? Have you discovered this? I just feel this like sense of dread, but like in the best way possible, because I'm like, I mean, what was, oh, you did this to me the other day. Oh, the den of Gleox or the Gleok den, um, in the depths. Like I was like trying to find a King Gleok to take a picture because I wanted to make like, I wanted to make a nice model in Terrytown. And, and then this like gleokden shit came out of nowhere and my like stomach dropped through my asshole and i was so (laughs) scared about a video game and then like there was something else where someone was like oh have you seen this and it was you know some oh the the goddess statue um up in up in the valley and the far north um west of the map and i was like oh my god like i know exactly where this was like i i remember the forgotten temple from breath of the wild but oh my god i can't believe they've done something with this i can't believe they've changed something with this and 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 there's just this sense of awe and wonder that they've put onto this game that that um beats Breath of the Wild in that it feels more mature. Like um Breath of the Wild uh, to do a kind of ham-fisted metaphor feels like when you're 18 years old and leaving the house for the first time and you're discovering the world um anew um and and you know you're kind of doing it in that juvenile way because you're out on your own and you're stumbling and and things are a bit overwhelming but like still still very exciting and 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 new. Tears of the Kingdom feels like you have established yourself as a person and are now looking, you know, you've moved to a new city and are, you know, or a new town and there's so many opportunities, so many new things to discover and and, and you're discovering it with that level of maturity that is new. And and those powers feel like that, the level of dread that like these new places um, uh, evoke um, feels like that. Um, but there's just something like about taking, not quite recycling, but taking things that were previously true and, and, and powering up them up just that little bit that that is where this game really really excels um and also to doing twists and i'm trying to not run into the spoilers issue here but like doing taking twists on things that are very familiar from breath of the wild um into places that i hadn't ever imagined that they would go i don't want to get into spoilers but like run the dragon plot in this game if you haven't mm-hmm. yet you absolutely must run it it is beautiful um just beautiful beautiful writing um but but yeah it's just all of this stuff is like um you know Terrytown for me is one of these things that like also embodies this just as much as the powers i mean literally in some cases because in Terrytown you can use ultra hand to build a house like it is just this turning it up to 11 and uh, and it should feel tired and in a world in which um you know 
a quote unquote IP turning things up to 11 just gets you results like this new Flash movie where everybody just wants to fucking kill themselves. Like it should not have been possible for this game to have done exactly what it did and to, to such soaring highs. Oh yeah. No, I, it's, um, I, I, I'm so sorry, Emily, but I have to, uh, to the Metal Gear Solid gamers out there, <laughs> what Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom feels to me is Breath of the Wild was MGS5 Ground Zeroes, which was essentially like an extended teaser. Like it was almost like a proof of concept of Kojima's new Fox engine for Metal Gear. And then Metal Gear Solid 5, The Phantom Pain was the actual fucking game. And I still think Breath of the Wild is one of the five to 10 best video games ever made. But in relation to Tears of the Kingdom, it does at times feel like a proof of concept. Yep. And Tears of the Kingdom is really where um, stuff went on. Um, I do want to talk about a couple more topics uh, before we sign off today. Um, Emily, are you cool with doing another episode on Tears of the Kingdom, maybe more from a narrative standpoint down the road? We are morally um, obligated to. Okay, so we're going to save a lot of story stuff uh, and we'll come back and I'm sure we'll talk about mechanics and stuff. I do want to talk a little bit about the depths here, yes. um, mostly just in concept and less in terms of what they mean narratively. But I think this goes back to something that's very old school Zelda. Um, again, I'm the old guy here and I love that NES and SNES <laughs> and N64 Zeldas. It really feels like the depths is the dark world from A Link to the Past. Um, one of the key differences between the dark world and the light world in that game was the geography. Like it was almost inverted in between the light world and the dark world, where there would be a plateau in the light world, there would be a flatland or a depression in the dark world. And they've applied that to this underground level of Hyrule, where everything that's happening on, uh, the depths level is an inverse of what's happening on the surface level. And um, this is possibly a spoiler, but I think enough people know about this. You you know the relationship between the shrines up top and the what's beneath it, right? Yes, and the names. Yes. Um, so uh, in the depths, um, there are things called light roots, which you can use to unlock and like light up the area that's in the near surrounding. And these actually correspond to the shrines that are on the surface map. And they even have the same name, but in reverse order in terms of lettering. And now at this point in the game, I'm actively using that to my advantage. When I'm in the depths, I go to the surface map and see where's the nearest yes. shrine from where <laughs> I am. Yeah. And then I kind of use that to guide me because... I was talking earlier about how the depths challenges you to get out of that breath of the wild mode and the way it does that is because everything is dark and because there are a lot of like mountains and hills and cliffs, you don't really know where you're going. You might see a light route off in the distance, but if you walk 50 meters ahead, that might have disappeared behind a cliff or a tree. So you have to either use your, you know, camera and scope and markers to like put something on the light route so you know to navigate towards it, or you have to um, use your map, like I was saying, and look at where the nearest shrine is and try to go from there. Or I'm assuming by the time I get to end game, I'm going to be doing the reverse, where it's like, oh, I still have seven shrines to find. Let me find all the light routes that I unlock because <laughs> I unlock the depths, and this will probably give me an idea where I need to go to find the shrines. Um, and you can't really rely on just kind of gliding everywhere because you don't know what you're gliding into. You might just glide into a gloomy cliff that you're not able to climb and that you're just losing health climbing up or down. Or you might find yourself fighting a Lionel that you can't even see because everything is completely dark around you. Yeah. And, and, and the depth thing was I was really skeptical at first, mostly because like I am a visually impaired gamer. And so like a lot of the times when things are dark, 
It just means that I like can't deal with it. Uh, so I kind of went into this after discovering the depths, knowing that they existed. I kind of went into this game being like, this will just be a map that I never deal with. I never explore. And hopefully it doesn't involve the main plot and that'll be fine. Um, and instead, it's probably one of the bits of the the, the map that I'm enjoying exploring the most. Um, and it is in a surprise turn for Nintendo, actually not that inaccessible at all um, for for disabled gamers. Um, Really wasn't expecting them to pull that one out, um, Nintendo being as they are um, with disabled gamers. Um, But one of the things that I also am surprised, pleasantly surprised by, is the fact that there's no inherent evil to to the depths. Um, I was a little, not nervous, it's not like I would have liked this game less if this weren't true, but I was pleasantly surprised by the fact that like, the depths as a location are treated as um, as effectively neutral. Um, or maybe neutral isn't the right word, but but they are. There's nothing. There's no inherent moral value to them one way or the other. Um, they, like the surface of Hyrule, um, have been invaded by the gloom, um, by the the influence of the demon king. But as you progress as you cast light upon upon the depths as you explore as you do your bits and pieces to clear out the gloom infected um creatures that that live there which i should say are not really more numerous than than the things that um dwell on top of on or you know on the surface of hyrule um you you start to realize that this is not like the native um state of of the depths um it is also being invaded just as much as as hyrule it is is also being infected just as much as hyrule is and I like that this idea that there is a dark side, if you will, to Hyrule that isn't a morally bad one, um, and that there is this kind of, you know, uh, Star Wars bullshit. There is this balance, the light and the dark. Um, mm. uh, but but the dark is not a, a moral bad. Um, it is the thing that is, you know, hiding in the dark um, that is the problem. And, and I really liked that. Uh, it was, again, just this game flexing its ability to kind of show narrative nuance in a way that, like, it didn't have to, um, but is all the better for having done so. Yeah, because when you like actually get down into uh, what's actually in the depths, besides you know your standard uh, field villains, it's a bunch of like mines. Like people were mining zonite here. This is what the constructs and the zonai were doing long before. Um, there was you know just like civilization was down here, and they did stuff that you would expect civilizations to do. Um, it's not just because we're underground that all of a sudden we're going down into the depths of hell or anything. This isn't Dante's Inferno per se. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I'm sure you would love that, Emily. But you know that's not a uh, that's not what this is. It's just another part of the world. It's just another manifestation of it, and it's just as prone to the same systems and the same problems as the above world and the sky world. And one of the like the genius parts of the game design to me is the economies at work between your inventory and where you find stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you will need stuff, stuff you find in the Sky Islands will help you cure what's down in the gloom, um, or what's down in the depths, rather. And all the resources you find in the depths, you can bring to the surface and you can forge them into stuff you'll use in the sky, more or less, things that can fly. Um, it's just very clever. The game naturally weaves you through the three layers of the map that so that even though I'm the kind of guy who's like, I'm gonna spend the next three days just running around the depths trying to unlock everything, if I didn't do that, the game would naturally lead me there and back all on its own without forcing my hand or me feeling like I'm on a narrative track that I must follow to complete it. It's just the logical way the economies of this game work, the way the like Zonai minerals work with Zonai work with like the charges. Like it's all just very natural and it keeps you 
It keeps you always moving in a way that Breath of the Wild did too, but a lot of it was just like, ooh, I see something interesting over there off in the distance in the horizon, or I see this weird shape on my map. I'm going to go there. This game is doing the same thing, but it's also doing it with the tears of the kingdom <laughs> as much <laughs> as it is doing it with just the map that you're on. Yes. Yep. 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 Um, and, and there's also like, I, I like that this game gives you even more to engage with. Um, and I know I just said like, oh, I was planning on not really dealing with the deaths so now I'm stuck into them. But like this game gives you as much of an option to opt out of all of the game <laughs> effectively as it does to opt into it. Um, and one of the things that I quite like is like, I'm quite far into the game. I've played about 60 hours of this game so far. I have not gotten a, like a, a upgraded battery or whatever it is. I haven't gotten a single one. Um, so I'm not really spending that much time like mining the Zonite or whatever yeah it is the raw zonite that you have to convert i don't even know how that mechanic mm. works like i know it exists i've had it explained to me but like i don't i've never i just don't care like i'm not really concerned i'm not really spending all of that much time like building things that need batteries or more than like my single default battery um or sticking a kind of power cell onto it to, to survive it and and instead i'm just like wandering around the depths mostly to take pictures of the things because i love collecting for the hyrule compendium but like these things I know are there. Like I see the Zonite like um 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 ores. Um, but I just like I'm not I'm not opting into it. I'm I'm instead doing 10 million other things in the depths. But the fact that like the, the game has such like a kind of judgment neutral approach to to how it presents the things that it has to present is is a lovely kind of pressure-free way of allowing you to explore this massive open world, which is I think also quite nice given the context of the depths and given how like spooky scary difficult they are how much of an inversion they are of like the familiarity of hyrule um ha kind of taking that pressure off by letting you really pick and choose your adventure in, in, in a classic sense um i think just allows that level of richness to something like the depths um i, I should also say as that neuron just fired absolutely fucking insane that that they didn't show anything about the depths in the mm -hmm. Like the publicity materials for this game, they there was a whole second game built into this game that they just did not advertise this with, and it's like the best selling game of all time. Like, what an enormous flex! And then for it to not just be like, oh, they built a second map, but it's also mostly just flat, and you can tell they just stuck it in there at the last minute. Like, no, it is a fully developed map, it is almost as developed, if not equally as developed, as Hyrule ground level. And and they just were like, you'll discover it when you discover it. We're not concerned about forcing you to discover it. You will experience that sense of awe and wonder on your own terms, or perhaps not at all. And that's totally fine. That is still a totally legitimate play way to play that game. That is such confidence off of the development team. Uh, before we get into the Tolkien stuff, do you have any complaints or drawbacks of this game? Anything that doesn't quite work for you? Um... I feel like every time I do, it is later solved by like something in the game. Like I either learn something or uh, Rivali's Gale I miss. I mean, that's not really a problem because mm -hmm. I know if I just like learned how to put things together and build machines, it would be fine. I miss Rivali's Gale though. I really do. I'm so fucking lazy about climbing. Um, I think put a rocket on your shield. Yeah. Oh, on my shield. On my shield. Oh my god. Okay, maybe I don't miss Rivali. But see, this is the thing, is every time I think I have a gripe about something, there is a solution to it that I've just mm -hmm. not bothered to think of. So, no, I don't think I do. <laughs> I mean, do you? 
Um, I have two incredibly minor ones, and both of them are going to make my case that Metal Gear Solid Five has the best control scheme of all time. <laughs> um, I, the first is um, the quick menus. Um, the you know the left, right, up, down uh, control pad buttons. Um, I really like the quick menus. Right is your you know your weapon. Left is your shield. Up is item. Down is your horse whistle, <laughs> yes. uh, which doesn't really make sense to me, especially because I never whistle for my horse. So my brain, because a lot of games, and I'm just going to uh, lean on Metal Gear Solid 5 here, but I know this is common in a lot of open world AAA games, is that those buttons are like your quick item menus. So my brain is thinking the down button should be my bow menu. Like that's how I can switch between bows and then that would be fine. Um, and I am, because of Metal Gear Solid, also a bit of a stealth gamer in all games. So I love sneaking up and like blowing up a barrel before I even have to go and melee a bunch of Boba Clins or whatever. Um, and then I'm like sneaking and I'm like, ooh, I have to switch to my bow. And then I end up hitting the down button and I horse whistle and I just like tell everyone, hey, I'm here. <laughs> um, I, I think that. they could, that could be, it's, it's fun. Like at this <laughs> point, I'm like good about it because I am, you know, I have a brain and I've trained myself not to do that anymore. Um, <laughs> I think that can be fixed. And then my other control scheme gripe, and this is something that I also got extremely mad at Elden Ring about. If, you, if you're going to have a sprint or dash function in your game, it should be pressing down on the analog stick that controls movement. Um, because oh, I'm an, oh, my God. No, no you, you are like, not a sweaty hands person, are you? I am. No, I am. That's the problem. Um, so what happens is be, when I'm really intensely like in a battle, especially against a Lionel or whatever, I tend to press very hard on the left analog stick. And when I do that, I sometimes push it down. So I end up finding oh, myself God. in a crouch and I'm <laughs> unable to avoid stuff. And this is back to my Metal Gear Solid propaganda. When you press down too hard on the left analog stick, you just break out into your full out sprint. So the left analog stick, whether you're just like moving the stick left or right, or you're pushing down on it hard, regardless, it is a navigation um, function. It is helping you move or move fast. Um, in Elden Ring, I think it was how you cast spells. Yeah. So I was like in the middle of trying to like move around and then I'd press too hard on the stick and then my guy would just start casting a spell <laughs> and I would get fucking shivved by whatever giant demon I was fighting. <laughs> I really think all navigation should be uh, located on the stick, but apparently I'm the only one who thinks that oh my on God. this podcast. I can't keep my... I have... Okay, so admittedly, I have like baby hands and that they're very like my fingers are very short but they're very chubby and so like i find it very difficult to keep my fingers on the joysticks <laughs> they're always fucking slipping off um and i also have very sweaty hands to begin with or very sweaty fingertips not hands weird combination of just psychoses <laughs> building on each other there but i feel like if that were how we'd like have to run in this game i would never be running anywhere i would just die oh that was it that was my other thing is um i would love to be able to roll um every hill i see in this game after having i was just watching connor play through wind waker actually no was it after, no it was wind waker um and all of the rolling in that and i know this is the thing that all zelda fans bitch about in these two is that you can't roll but like i've never looked at a hill in breath of the wild and wanted to roll it but like for some reason in tears of the kingdom i'm like please god let me roll down that and i know i can shield surf but it's not quite a roll and i wish they would give me a roll <laughs>
so uh, we're back to our token token book section. We weren't able to do it during our succession coverage, but thankfully the latest Zelda games do allow it. Um, I will plug Emily's appearance on Keeper's Select and Start podcast once more, just because they really got into the token aspects of Breath of the Wild. But Emily, tell me about how this game reminds you of Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. Um, let me get this quote exactly right. Uh, it reminds me of Numenor, a western ass beneath the sea, beyond the sea, beyond the sea, whatever. I, I should remember this, and I don't. It's uh, the Zonai, our Numenor. Um, uh, and it's, oh, I'm so sorry to do this, to be like Miss Negativity Debbie Downer um, on an otherwise happy episode. But like in the same year that we got just absolutely sucker punched by Rings of Power, um, during which time I kind of had convinced myself it would be impossible to ever effectively portray Numenor um, in in media that isn't written media. Um, Tears of the Kingdom came out. Um, Tears of the Kingdom came out and introduced us to the Zonai. And is not just... They are not just the Numenorians in sort of a general narrative sense, as in they're they're the predecessors whose sort of um, outsized impact is is helping influencing the the, the future, the present, now. Um, they're like aesthetically Numenor as well because they look really Byzantine. They have these beautiful tiles. They have this the style and look that screams Byzantium. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, the aesthetic stuff side, which was kind of this bonus for me, but but really felt like the big thing because I was like, oh, shit, I've won on every I can't stop winning. I can't stop racking up dubs here. Um, this sense of Breath of the Wild is the very near past and also kind of 10,000 years ago, but to a lesser extent, 10,000 years ago in Breath of the Wild just presents the blueprint. It's 100 years ago. That is the 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 the, the crisis, the problem that is being solved in Breath of the Wild. In Tears of the Kingdom, without getting too far into spoiler territory, the past is a thing that is um, to be discovered. Um, and as it is discovered, um, its positive um, and heroic influence on the present is made manifest. Um, it is not quite a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it is almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. And there is this sense of yearning and, and obligation to, but also um, benefit from the past that that really for me is Numenor. Um, it, it is the function of Numenor in the Lord of the Rings. Um, it, is, um, it is this driving sort of motivation for for Aragorn, whose who's line, whose ancestors fucking obliterated the, the legacy of the Numenorian faithful, of the, the pilgrims who came from, from Western S to, to Middle-earth. Um, it is the motivating factor behind characters like Denethor and, and Faramir, um, who, who are trying to embody the things that Numenor was at its height um, in this world that does not allow for that kind of embodiment to be there. Um, and so it is this echo. <laughs> um, it is this echo in the distance that 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 echoes loudly enough to be heard by those who are willing to hear it. Um, and, and there's this widespread feeling in Tears of the Kingdom amongst the people who are not privy to the memories that, that you discover in this game or the knowledge that is um, presented to you in, in this game, um, that there is something interesting happening um things falling from the sky um ruins with interesting writing it's probably even worth researching but it's not a full and complete spiritual engagement with it um and that's that's the the set that's the lay of men um in the lord of the rings that is um the 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 rohirrim who are at least in part descended from um the uh, from the numenorians that that is 
the the Hobbit who have forgotten all but their own histories and their own family trees. That is the people of Gondor who know of Numenor, but only in the sense that they might know a brand name like Nike or Adidas. Um, that is what this feels like in Tears of the Kingdom. And it's such a masterful representation of this and and of of this sense of like ancientry, true Tolkien-esque ancientry, um, that I had totally written off as completely impossible um, over the summer. And I'm now just like bowled over by in every sense of the term. Yeah, no, I think that's incredibly well said. Um, have you gotten to finding the ancient tablets yet that utilize the, I believe it's Middle English, not Old English, but um, have you found those yet? Oh my God, no, I haven't. Um, so there are islands in the sky that are kind of star-shaped um, and they have little tablets in them. Um, and it's part of a side quest out of Kakariko Village. I don't want to get too spoilery, but those tablets, Link cannot read them because they are written in old English or middle English or just not our modern day English. And he basically takes pictures, returns them to Kakariko village, and then a translator will read them to you. And even though that's not explicitly something middle earthy, it's just something I find is very Tolkien, Uh, which I thought was really cool. Um, and then there's also just a bunch of, um, what's it called? Just imagery or just like little things like field enemies that remind me of Tolkien. We got basically who warrants or ants in this game. Yes. Um, There are trees that come alive and attack you. That's great. Even what's happening with the master sword in this game. Um, It is very Narsil Mm -hmm. and Andoril style uh, because it is the blade that shatters in the opening scenes. And then there's obviously a quest line for you to reacquire that and the reforging of the sword. Um, Like all of that just totally clocks as very Lord of the Ringsy to me. And granted, broken swords go beyond just Tolkien, but I just think it's the most famous example in our like modern pop culture. Uh, it's just, uh, I, I don't know. It's just so good. And it feels like it's invoking and hitting all the right notes with all that um, without ever like being like, oh, this is clearly a reference to this, that, or another. Um, because Link's missing arm, um, th- that's something I can analogize mm-hmm. to a million different things. That's fucking Jamie Lannister losing his sword arm. Um, that is honestly Venom Snake in Metal Gear Solid Five because he gets a prosthetic arm. And then the, the stones that you're ga- gathering, the secret stones, it definitely has a little bit of that Infinity Gauntlet flavor to it. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about the comics here, not, not, <laughs> not, not the recent movies, um, but it definitely has a little bit of that aspect to it. Um, it just, it feels like it is, it understands where it is in terms of like the pop culture milieu and wants to honor all the good things about it without either being like, haha, Easter egg or some bullshit like that. But also understand it's all kind of a tapestry of like narrative tropes we have in like Western media. And I know we're talking about this as an Eastern design game, but it just feels like all those things are there for the taking or there for the reading without ever actually forcing it upon you which i really appreciate yeah and i also think it's doing something interesting as well it's doing the thing that i always wanted from lord of the rings um naively perhaps um which is it's expanding on the story after the story is complete and i know how that's literally a definition of a sequel but it's doing like the big story of breath of the wild is done um Mm-hmm. the the apocalypse has been ended slash averted and we are now rebuilding and and this to me is you know every time i finish reading the books reading reading the lord of the rings i'm always like take me to athelion and i want to see what's going on in athelion now that the war is done and you know the appendices do give you bits and pieces of that but but i want to know like i want to know what what it feels like to rebuild athelion what does it feel like to rebuild em and arnon what does it feel like to 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 um to clear to scour 
um, Menace, Menace Morgul. What does that look like? What is that story there? Um, and obviously, Tolkien never wrote that. Fine, I'll accept the L there. But but they've done that here. Um, and it's a thing that not many um, pieces of art, pieces of entertainment are brave enough or bold enough to do now. They don't want to deal with, you know, they always postpone the apocalypse because they're worried that you won't come back once the apocalypse has happened. And in a sense, for things like, you know, I know you're talking about the comics, but in, you know, the Marvel movies, um, Marvel never really fully recovered from Endgame, um, in, in a sense. Like, once the apocalypse, mm-hmm. the thing that they had built up over the last 10 years, once that had happened in Endgame, um, it's not to say that their movies aren't, you know, clocking a billion at the box office every single time they release one, but the, the viewership numbers aren't quite there. The interest isn't quite there. Um, and I think it's because they haven't built a narrative that is interesting enough to to justify life after the apocalypse, which is why they're doing all this multi-purchase, mm-hmm. which is not interesting Absolutely. or not Absolutely, I think you're nailing it. But like, you know, the, the, these guys, <laughs> the developers who have done The Legend of Zelda were confident enough to construct a narrative after the worst, after the cataclysm, after it has happened. What, what, what does the world look like then? What does a challenge look like after that? And, you know, I, um, like... Or sorry, rather, unlike um, Breath of the Wild and unlike Lord of the Rings, where you know Ganon, you see Ganon in purple smoke form um, circling Hyrule Castle. No matter where you are in Hyrule, you can always see that. And unlike Sauron, the Eye of Sauron, um, that you can see or be seen by, um, Ganondorf in this game is a very silent presence. Um, mm-hmm. You may hear him through occasional voices coming into your head, but. But he's very quiet. The average person isn't aware that something fucking awful is about to happen, except for the fact that the sky is falling. But even that is kind of treated as a benign curiosity. Um, And that is what these things look like once you think you've defeated the big bad. Um, And so they've had the thoughtfulness. They've had the the boldness. They've had the confidence to go ahead and do it. And it's paid off in spades. Um, And it's funny because Tolkien chose to not do that. He started writing The New Shadow and gave up on the basis that um, it's either too grim to have written that or who really cares about knowing what what happens after this this uh, the worst and the best has already happened um and to see you know the legend of zelda go and be like well fuck it we'll do it um i'd do it so well as they have is a true i think spiritual successor building upon what tolkien could not have done building upon what so many others could not have done and and just knocking it out of the park as they do so Oh, that's an excellent, excellent note to end on. Uh, let's say late July, early August, we'll come back after hopefully we've both beaten the game <laughs> or at least beaten it to our own satisfaction. And then we will do a full spoilers discussion because I honestly don't think we really covered enough of the, or not, we didn't cover enough of, but there's still all sorts of aspects about the gameplay and game design we were <laughs> only barely able to touch on. And I really, really want to dig into the story with you because I am a big proponent that Zelda always has a story and this one is fucking amazing. Um, And I would really like to dive into it the way we normally talk about stories in terms of Lord of the Rings and the other stuff we cover. So we will be back for part two, just like Breath of the Wild was. (laughs) And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where, where you'll get early access to our episodes, as well as access to our community discord, where we are constantly talking about Zelda, Lord of the Rings, and all sorts of other stuff. 
I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be fusing the sword that was broken to the one ring and fucking obliterating Sauron. <laughs> Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, we'll see you later. Ha, ha, ha.